verses in Philippians 3 that will frame our, uh, our biographical sketch that we're going to do this morning. Our, our dear friends, Danny, Angelina, Darren, and Brianna Johnson are probably at the airport right now. Their flight takes off at noon to go to first to Washington, D.C., then to Geneva, Switzerland, where they will, I think, drive, about an hour drive into southeast, where they're going to be spending the next year. Uh, last night, I just uh, I went over to their house as they were still packing things up, and they had told me they were counting down all the lasts. It's our last time of this, our last time for that. <clears throat> and as I hugged them, I said, this is now a first. This is our, our first mission family that we're sending out to the mission field. Uh, so it, it was a nice, it was a sweet moment to, to share with them. So please keep them in your prayers uh, today as they travel, but also we're going to be keeping their efforts in front, of, uh, in front of us and as we seek to serve the Lord together. But, you know, as we, as we approach a, a new year, a new calendar year this week, um, I remember when I was in, I was in uh, school, through middle school and high school, everybody was telling, new year wasn't anything to me because it was always a school year that meant I was older or meant that life was moving forward because I was counting down all the years that it would take to finish high school. But as we, as we grow older, uh, the calendar year becomes the point where we, we just take inventory of our lives. And this week, we'll have all, and they've already started, if you've probably, uh, whatever news source you look at, all the pictures of how, uh, all the things from this year, but we're also turning the calendar on a decade. And so now it's all the pictures from the decade. So as we take inventory of our own lives, and it is, it's helpful to do that. It's helpful for us to think, how is my life different today? Is my life different? There are some times when we just want to move past and forget and like, I want that out of my mind completely. Please bring something new for me. There are other categories that are like, man, this was, this was fruitful. I want this to last. But no matter what season we might find ourselves in, there's always a mission that God has on our lives to do everything for his glory. And everything, as Milton reminded us, for his preeminence. Here in Philippians chapter 3, if you look at verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God, God's call to us today is to keep going. If that means stay where you are, that means stay where you are. If that, whatever category in your life, that, that, that go of the, of the commission of Jesus to his disciples, what does that go mean for us? Where does it show up in our lives? You know, and, and that forgetting what lies behind, everything that the Apostle Paul said previously in that chapter was everything that culture defines as successful. And culture defines as 
or, or society or our upbringing defines as what, is, what matters and what counts in life. He says, I had all that, that everything of culture says is valuable. I had the reputation. I had the education. I had everything. It's nothing, he says, compared to what Jesus did for me. And so I hope we feel at the, the turning of the calendar year, the prompting of the Lord to measure our lives well with the gospel, to measure our lives not with financial success or uh, education or, or relational uh, peace, that we are measuring our lives by the gospel, period. And that, the story uh, this morning to share is of a lady named Lillian Trasher. Uh, she was born in September of 1887 and died December 17, 1961 in Asiut, Egypt. And why would a single lady end up there? Well, her, her story is just packed with all the details of how God shows up in particular ways to provide for his people, but what she said all along is, I just did what he told me to do. I just did what he told me to do. She died at 74 years old, and the doctors uh, said her heart was just worn out. She had high blood pressure. She just went and went and went, but she had different periods where she needed to rest in order to recuperate, but ultimately she said, I just did what God wanted me to do. And may we be stirred and may we be uh, spurred on to live that, that same simplistic faith, which takes all of our lives. I just want to do, God, what you're telling me to do. I want to hear your voice clearly, and I want to walk that out. Lillian grew up uh, in the, the northern part of uh, Florida by the, the Atlantic coast near Jacksonville, Florida, but would go a lot of times in southeastern Georgia, spent a lot of times there. But her dad moved the family to Asheville, North Carolina, uh, in order to grow up. And she got on a train at 17 years old with the desire to go to Atlanta, to uh, the Georgian newspaper, to be an artist. She was an artist and wanted to go be a, uh, an artist for the newspaper. But on her way, she wanted to go visit some friends back down in southeastern Georgia. So on the train, she's going down there and meets a lady named Maddie Perry. Maddie ran a, a faith orphanage in Marion, North Carolina. And so as they were talking, uh, Lillian said, I'm on my way down to Brunswick uh, just to visit some family friends, and then I'm heading over to Atlanta, big new adventure, 17 years old. That's a lot. Her older sister, Jenny, had moved out to uh, Los Angeles, and was nine years difference. I mean, had already moved out there, was successful, bought a house. It was a big thing for, uh, for ladies, especially during that time, to be able to, to afford their own house. Uh, she is, she meets Maddie Perry, and Maddie says, I run this orphanage. And just out of the blue says to Lillian, would you consider coming to the orphanage? I need some help there. And said, that's not part of the plan. I'm going to Atlanta. That's where I'd like to be. Thank you very much. She uh, goes to, down to Brunswick, and she comes to the, the part, she comes to the place 
in Brunswick, Georgia, that she prayed to receive Christ, and she actually in that moment rededicated her life. As a young girl, she was, she was there with family, friends, dedicated her life to Christ, and this is the prayer that she prayed as, prayed as a young girl, that again, at 17 years old, she said, Lord, I want to be your girl. If ever I can do anything for you, just let me know, and I'll do it. She just did what God called her to do. She ends up in Atlanta. She goes to uh, the, the newspaper office. She meets Mr. Howard, who's the editor. He looks over her portfolio. It's very busy, like all newspaper offices are. He says, just come back tomorrow. We'll get everything worked out. She's ecstatic. Great. I've got a job. She's going walking around. She shows back up the next morning. Mr. Howard is home with the flu. Somebody else is in his place. She's asking. I, I saw Mr. Howard yesterday. Uh, he said to come back today at 10 a.m. He said, well, he's home with the flu. Um, he, told me, he told me somebody uh, that he found an artist. Uh, so she, she was a little distraught, kind of thinking, oh, man, I thought that was me. And so she said, well, can I have my portfolio back? And they're looking, can't find any on his desk, can't find any of her pictures, paintings, anywhere. She's, she doesn't know what to do. She says, well, he's, the man filling in for Mr. Howard says, just come back in a few days uh, and he'll be able to have all that for you because I can't find it. She said, okay. Walks out. She went from the heights of joy to now despair. What am I going to do? I thought I had this job. But she's, she's remembering God works these things on purpose. And she was listening. She said, all right, Lord, if, if you don't want me working at the newspaper, what do you want me to do? And in her, in her soul, in, as she's interacting with the Lord, she realizes I think I need to go to the Faith Orphanage in Marion. I need to go back to North Carolina because I think the Lord wants me to work there. And a peace, when she interacted with the Lord on that, a peace came over her heart. And she said, okay, I'll do that. A few days later, she heads back to the newspaper. Mr. Howard says, where have you been? She says, well, I came the day after I saw you. I came back at 10, but the man said you had given the position away. He said, yeah, to you. But in that moment, she realized, no. God caused that confusion so I would go to the orphanage because that's where he wants me. She ends up at the orphanage. She works there for a few years, uh, and, and she didn't have anything. Every time she traveled, she traveled with very few belongings because she knew that just wasn't important. Uh, she needed shoes in the orphanage, and she prayed for God to give her shoes. So they, uh, people were donating things, clothes to the orphanage. She found a pair of shoes. They were men's shoes, but they fit. Started wearing them and said, why are you wearing those shoes? They're men's shoes. She said, I prayed, and God gave me shoes, so I'm going to wear these shoes. As she was serving there, she met a man named Tom Jordan. Uh, one night, they were preparing these dinner boxes for auction to raise money for the orphanage, and this man, Tom, bid on Lillian's box, won it, and then tells her, I hope one day you'll be making dinner for me every night. Well, they started spending some time together, eventually became engaged. She's making her wedding dress. All the features are going on. It's great. It's fun, euphoric. And, and she, even in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, this is 1910, she has time to go with Maddie Perry, the orphanage, uh, the lady who runs the orphanage, to hear a, a missionary speak from India. And as she's listening, in her heart she knew God was calling her to be a missionary. She went back and told Tom. Tom wasn't excited. 
Tom wanted to be a pastor. He was already an ordained pastor. He didn't want to go out of the country. He didn't want to do anything. She said, Tom, I have to do what God's calling me to do. She broke off the engagement 10 days before their wedding day to follow the Lord. She simply wanted to do what God was telling her to do. He was stunned, trouble taking it in, but he said, if that's what God's calling you to do, you need to go. She found out about a mission conference that was happening in Pittsburgh, and she said, hopefully I can get there, and she doesn't have any money, so all of her friends are pooling together the $18 train fare that would take her from uh, Asheville to Pittsburgh. They, they put it all together. She has what she needs, and she puts it on Maddie's desk in order uh, for safekeeping, but somebody came in thinking that that was the money for the bills that needed to be paid and used the very same money to pay the bills. Everybody's like, oh, no, that was a train fare. Let's try to pull together some more money. They pulled together $10 at that time, which would only get her, get her to Washington, D.C. She said, I'm going to Washington, D.C. and see what happens there. She goes to Washington, D.C., uh, stays with Maddie Perry's friend, family friend, but the, the family friend said, I'm sorry, I have a missionary staying here. I don't have any place for you to stay, but I have somebody else, but come in for tea. She goes in, and the missionary that was staying there was a Reverend Bellsford from Asiut, Egypt. She realized in talking with him, okay, I know why I only had $10 to come here because I needed to meet this man. And this man, after talking, said, you can come work with us. We need some help. I can't, I can't pay you to get there. So if you get yourself there, you have a place to serve. I said, all right. Ended up uh, scrounging together some money to actually go to the conference in Pittsburgh. And the friends that she made in Pittsburgh gave her the money to get to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. But she needed to go to New York in order to get on a ship for Egypt. So she said, Lord, what are you going to do? And every step of the way, he provided for her. And somebody would ask her a question, what are you doing? Well, I'm trying to get to New York. Oh, how much do you need? Give her the money in order to complete her journey. She... She always said, if God wants me there, I'll be there. If God wants this, I'll do it. She, so she gets to New York, July of 1910, stays there and through, uh, through just the relationships that she's met through the conference in Pittsburgh, but also um, the people who are just Christians taking care of one another is how she was cared for. She was given the, the fare, the $60 fare to get her to Egypt. And several of her friends from uh, a mission came on the day that she was to sail to say goodbye. And one of them said, one of the friends said, just open the Bible and just read the first thing that you see. Which is really not a wise way to read God's word, but this is where she came to. I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their groanings and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send thee into Egypt. She knew God was confirming this is what exactly uh, what he had called her to do. So after a several week voyage across the Atlantic, she arrives in Egypt. She first is in Alexandria, seeing the wonders of Alexandria in Egypt and then she has to travel the few hundred mile distance up the Nile, even though it's south, you go up the Nile because the Nile flows that way, south to north. Uh, she goes to the city of Asiut, and I think there's, a, if you go to the next one, Tony, there's, that's, that would be the city, that's the city 1918, so that looked very similar to what she uh, laid her first eyes on 
in Asiut. She began serving with uh, Reverend Bellsford and, and his wife and, and the other missionaries that were there. <coughs> Excuse me, she, <coughs> a lady, Sella, would take her into the village to just talk with people uh, with an opportunity to, to wanting to share the gospel. After only about three weeks in Asiut, uh, somebody ran to her in the middle of the night, very frantic. And, we, she, and asking specifically for Lillian and not knowing, oh, I forgot this, this cool detail. Uh, her sister Jenny said, you're going to need somebody to take care of you. I'll go with you for a little while, get you settled, and then I'll go back. Uh, she bought another house on the West Coast and was renting out both of those. She had some rental property that was providing for her to be there. So Lillian and Jenny, uh, Lillian and Jenny are there in Asiut. But now uh, this, this person comes frantic, knows they're calling Lillian. So Sarah says, well, I'll go with you. So they go over to this house, and it was a weird, dark, dingy house. And she sees this old woman holding a bundle on her lap, and she realized that bundle was a baby. And they took the baby and gave it to her. They were saying to her in Aramaic, please, please, please. And so Jen, uh, Lillian took the baby from them and was looking around and saw what was the teenage mother who was dying uh, in the corner of the room. And, and she's saying, I can't, I don't have the capability of caring for this baby. And the, the old lady who was the grandmother said, I'll just throw her in the Nile. I don't, I, we don't want her. Do either you take her or nothing. Lillian said, I'll take her. So she brings her home. Uh, she and Jenny begin to care for the baby, but the baby is near death and just crying and miserable all the time, waking up everybody else in the mission house and kept them awake for a couple weeks to the point that Reverend Bellsford said, the baby's got to go. We can't even do our, our, our own duties during the day because we're not getting the rest. And Jenny said, it's not going to happen that way. Or, or Lillian said, it's not going to happen that way. So without even consulting Jenny, she goes down the street. She finds a house for rent. She says, how much is it? They make a deal. She said, I'll be right back. She goes with the little money that she had left. She uh, went to the market and bought some uh, furniture. She said, I don't need a bed. I'll just use the palm leaves. So let's, she, she hired somebody to go bring the table and chairs uh, and the small furnishings to the new house. She goes back to Jenny, says, in a matter of three hours, Reverend Belsford said this, I said this, and I went to rent a house. And Jenny said, good for you. Let's go. So they named the baby Pareda. In the next 10 days, Lillian and Jenny cared for that baby. Every mouthful of milk was a victory, and every minute of sleep a relief. Now, as they were, as they were in this place, uh, uh, in this rented house, caring for this baby, then became known that, hey, uh, you, can, you, can, you can drop your baby off at that person's house. She'll take him. It was on February 10th, 1911, that she, she wrote on that slip of paper and put it in her Bible the day that she moved in to that place. But as... She was experiencing and just asking the Lord for wisdom on what to do. It became very clear to her that she was supposed to, to open an orphanage there in Asiut. When, as confirmation to know, God, are you really calling me to do this? 
a, a little Muslim boy around 12 years old who was a, a courier. He delivered messages for people in the city. He delivered her a message and just hung around the house. And in co- course, a conversation asking, what are you doing? Why are you still here? He said, you're the lady that takes in babies. She said, yes, that's me. And he said, here. He had, little, he had uh, about seven cents. He gave it to her. He said, you can take this to help with the babies. And she remembered in Zechariah 4, do not despise the day of small beginnings. And so with these seven piasters, she began an orphanage. And she would, from that, from this small beginning, it opened the door to huge possibilities. She began taking in uh, other children. And, and soon, within a matter of, of weeks, she had three children she was caring for. But as they were, uh, it wasn't all glorious. They're tending to Farida, and, and she's getting better. And then they take these other boys, and one of those boys, Habib, had bubonic plague, which then spread to the other children, and Lillian contracted. Both of them survived. Everybody survived. But these were tests that were just going to be small, faith-building moments for Lillian's life. There were farmers all around called Felahin, and they would donate uh, part of their produce to the orphanage because they all knew what Lillian was doing. But they didn't want to come bring it to her. She had to go get it from them, and so she realized, uh, there's a bunch of donkeys around here. I'll hire one of those. Ended up buying one of them, and she would ride a donkey out to the fields, load up all that she could, bring it back to the orphanage, and she said, make several trips throughout the day, every day on the donkey. She became known as the woman on the donkey. And all the farmers would look for her and see her coming, and she would, uh, she would just gather, gather the, the, the provisions for the orphanage. And as the orphanage is growing, she has around 50 kids now, which is not the, the house that they're in can't contain them. It was just all beds, all cribs everywhere. She said they really need another place to, to, to have, really build an orphanage that would give them space. And somebody told her about some land that was uh, across the Nile in Asiut, a land across the Nile that she could use, uh, she could buy, I think it started at half an acre, but it had room on either side to expand in future times. So she said, go tell the man I want it and I'll have the money a week from today. She thought, um, all right, how am I going to get the money? But she also remembered that a man who had visited a few days before said, if there's anything I can do, just please let me know. She visited him and told him about the land that was there, and it was $50, and he said, or 50 pounds. He said, okay, here, take the 50 pounds, go buy it. And as she was... Um, as she's is enjoying the fact that she gets to build this, she's always looking for, for more confirmation. But she needed to keep the prices down in order to build, and so she said, I know what I can do. I can have the boys build, make the bricks. So she bought six brick forms, and they would continue to build just every day, accumulating, uh, making more and more bricks. But think about it. It's the same thing that the Israelites did for Pharaoh. God's people making bricks. But Pharaoh had God's people making bricks for his own glory, but now these bricks are being made for God's glory. As things were moving forward and buildings end up getting built around, 
Lillian returns uh, from the brick making at the new place to the house that she was renting and noticed a man who was standing at the gate of the house and she recognized that man. She, she saw something familiar about him uh, only to find out that it was Farida's father and he was coming to take her away from the orphanage. Mary or Lillian was completely distraught. She cried and cried and cried only a few weeks later to find out that Farida had died. God used this to say she wants, you know, she went from this little girl being happy in the orphanage to now dead. It was too much for Lillian, but she kept on moving on. 1916, the orphanage building was completed. Now she had 50 orphans and eight widows in her care. The widows usually were blind uh, and they couldn't hold jobs, so she would have them cook and clean and do what they could around the house. And all the children, everybody had their chores and everybody did their chores in their daily routine. In 1918, Jenny Trasher, Lillian's uh, sister, finally left to return to the United States, what she had promised to stay a few months, ended up being eight years that she was with Lillian. Now it's uh, World War I time, and the British came to occupy Egypt in promise of protecting the Suez Canal. So as uh, the, the, the war is coming to an end, the Egyptians want the British to leave, the British are staying, and the Egyptian men begin to riot. They begin to attack any foreigner. Uh, one night, she, she saw from where she was, she saw the men crossing the bridge near, uh, near the orphanage. She saw the men crossing the bridge, and she knew they, there was yelling. She saw swords. She heard some gunfire. She said, this is not good. So she brings 107 children to an old brick kiln that was near the property. She brought them all there, and she's counting. Everybody's counting, and she recognizes there's two that are missing, and they were toddlers. She runs back into the orphanage, finds the two toddlers who were hiding. She gets them in her arms, and she brings them out, and she's running through the courtyard of the orphanage while she's being fired at by the Egyptians. Twists her ankle, falls into a ditch, there was a ditch close by, she gets them, covers them until the men had passed long enough to then run into the kiln with the other children and the other uh, widows in order to stay safe. That wasn't the only thing. There was more mobs that would show up. and they, They took Lillian to be British, even though she was American. She was trying to explain she's American. Another time they came and knocked on her door, a different mob, and they, they were getting ready to kill her. And a neighbor, Egyptian neighbor, came and said, stop. You need to leave her alone. Of course, the leader of the mob then takes his sword and puts it at this man's belly, saying, why are you going to stand up for her? He said, because she's taking all of our Egyptian babies, all the orphans, and caring for them. Leave her alone. The neighbor stood up to this mob, to where inexplicably, the mob turns around and they leave leaving the orphanage, leaving Lillian alone. In, in a, the aftermath of all of the British occupation, uh, when it was dangerous for the foreigners to be there, the British government said, all the foreigners need to leave. She said, why do I need to leave? 
I'm not fighting. I'm not doing anything. I'm caring for over 100 children. I need to stay here. And the British said, no, you can take it up with the colonel in Cairo, but you're, you have to leave. So she said, all right, I'm going to take all the kids to Cairo with me. So she takes all of them 200 miles upriver and to, to plead her case. But the night before she was to meet with the British general, God spoke to her and said, it's all right. I want you to go back to the United States to raise some money. Peace fell upon her. She said, all right, I'll do that, Lord. If you're calling me to do that, I'll do that. Of course, it was a, a tearful goodbye. But she knew the Lord was sending her, so she gladly returned to the United States, where she traveled all over. By that time, uh, she actually had, she was part of the Holiness Church before she left. And within the Holiness Movement, different things coming together, the Assemblies of God denomination began. And she came back uh, and joined the Assemblies of God denomination. And then they were sending her all over the place to preach, uh, speak in their churches. Now she's 31 years old, over 100 people in her care as she's traveling around. Then she says, it's time to go back. So for about 18 months to two years, she was in the United States again. She only had a suitcase with a change of clothes and some personal items. That's all she brought. They tried to put her up in Houston. They tried to put her up in this nice fancy hotel. And she looked around and she saw that it cost $108 a night. And she computed how many bowls of rice that would be to feed her children. And she said, I can't stay here. She phoned the guy who dropped her off. She was waiting in the lobby with her suitcase. She said, I will not stay here. Is something wrong with the room? Yes, it's too expensive. Do you know how many bowls of rice I could feed my children by what you're spending on me? He says, "Uh, would you like me to find somebody from a church that can house you? Yes, please do that. She always was thinking of the children first, and where, they were, where the orphanage was situated, people would come uh, up the Nile, the boats would come up and down the Nile, and they would stop in Asiut to, to refuel and to get the other supplies that they needed, and she realized, oh, I can make little flyers and go invite people to come see the orphanage, because she's just looking to gain uh, support from how she's doing that, and a Scottish royal family showed up. One day, as she's on the bridge with the kids, come see the orphanage, the only orphanage in Egypt. She's handing out all of these things just as a tourist attraction. So uh, the Scottish lord and lady begin to give through the years. Uh, At one point, I think they gave 20,000 pounds to Lillian and the orphanage. And it was just those connections that God used all the time. Even Egyptian women were helping her. Egyptian women put together, uh, not non-Christians, were put, they put together their money to help buy land, and they bought her an automobile, so she didn't have to ride the donkey around. She got pretty, pretty used to the car pretty quickly. But all along this, she said, the children have never missed a meal. God provided for them. One night in, in April of 1927, Lillian gathered all the kids around, and she did her typical devotion with them. But as she started reading the Bible, she began to see that kids were falling on their knees and weeping and confessing their sins to where their weeping and their own prayers to God was louder than her instruction to them about God's word. Revival broke out in that place. And then they were saying, we can't just keep this here. The kids said, we need to bring this out to the city. So she began sending them out to preach the gospel in Asiut. 
times was, uh, were, were difficult in the Depression in the 1930s. Uh, their annual income was dropped in half. Uh, and then the Egyptian government, after the British surrendered most of the control within Egypt, the uh, Egyptian government ordered that all Muslim children had to leave the orphanage that Lillian had set up. This would mean 70 of her children would be taken from her. And they were taken from her. Uh, the Egyptian government started building orphanages all over the place. She had seven, now, 700 orphans at the beginning of 1933. And when the 70 were taken, it was the first time they ever, ever, ever had a drop in the number of orphans in their care. These were the beginning of very dire times. She one day faced the real possibility that there really was no more food. We have nothing. She said, the only thing I can do is send everybody away. So she gathered all of the children in the courtyard, and she said, we just don't have anything. It's too difficult. We don't have money coming in. We've got nothing. So everybody needs to go with family members. If you don't have a family member, you need to go with a friend. If you don't have a friend, we're going to find a friend for you to go with. And she had this plan of sending all of the orphans away. And they were, in that moment, a boy stands up around 10 or 12 years old. He stands up and he asks God, God, I will be completely obedient if we can stay together. And all the kids started saying this. And Lillian realized, we can't send anybody away. We need everybody together. We need them here. We're a family, and we're going to go through this together. So she had them pray. She had all of them pray, and she went, checked a mailbox. Uh, uh, some, a letter had arrived that day. She checks the mailbox, and in there was a check for 1,000 pounds. And it was addressed to Asiut, India. Somebody in Kansas recognized who it was for, recognized it was the wrong country, and put it in the right bin so it would get where it needed to, it needed to go to Lillian. God took care of them every single way. Then money began to come in. Uh, the Maclays from Scotland were sending more money. And for the first time now, Lillian could take a break and relax, and so she went to Alexandria to be by the Mediterranean Sea for a few weeks uh, because of her high blood pressure and chest pains and headaches that she had been having for months. But as she was there, she was, she was asking God what a, about her role and, and what it was. And there was an Egyptian uh, story about a boy who goes in the desert and digs wells with his hands in order to get water as he's going through the desert. And, and it's a struggle and toil, and his hands are bleeding, and he finally goes and makes it to his destination. And another boy comes behind him, happy and gleeful, and said, how did you make it so fast? He said, oh, somebody dug all these wells. It was great. I just came straight through. And she realized she'd be like that first boy who was just digging and digging and digging so the gospel would come through next time with ease. She ended up in 1939 being the, the subject of an article in Reader's Digest where they named her the Nile Mother. Instead of all the wonders in Egypt, Miss Lillian Trasher is the greatest of them all. One evening at supper, uh, Lillian announced that all the school, <coughs> all school and work were going to be suspended for 24 hours so they could pray 
about provisions. They had nothing left again. In the morning, she had a telegram arrive that said, Miss Trasher, please come to me for lunch tomorrow, Ambassador Kirk. She thought, this is, I don't need this, but all right, Lord. So she made the trip to see him. And she, Ambassador Kirk began to, and she, he has, he's a smiling face going on. And she's going, what's going on here? The ambassador said, oh, there was a Red Cross ship that was on its way to Greece, but the Germans had just conquered Greece. It was a British Red Cross ship. Uh, they had just conquered Greece, so the captain ordered that all of the cargo be thrown overboard to escape the Mediterranean so it wouldn't be sunk. But there was somebody else on board, a, a shipman on board knew of you and knew we were close. They were close to you, so he asked, can it just be unloaded? And he promised to unload it within a couple of hours, and the captain said, fine, do whatever you have to do. They unloaded all of this onto a dock in Alexandria, and Ambassador Kirk says, I was just wondering, Lillian, would you like all of that cargo? Cassandra Lulutis unloaded all of her cargo, and it was all given to Lillian this time, she's got 900 kids. At the end of the war, it's 1941 when this happens. 1945, the kids were still wearing the dresses and the clothes that they got off of that ship. God not only provided, he provided. Even in the midst of a war, she had a shipload of supplies to depend on. 1947, a cholera epidemic shows, uh, shows up within Egypt, and it makes its way up the Nile, and they, she, for the first time, was saying, maybe we should turn kids away, especially if they've been exposed to cholera, because it's such a deadly and, and quickly spreading disease. Two kids show up, two boys, Musa and Ibrahim. Father says, please, will you take them? I can't afford them. She was about to say no. She actually told the, the worker, one of the uh, late, the servants, uh, uh, one of the ladies coming to him, the assistant, uh, the, she told the assistant, just tell them, no, we can't take anybody. It's just too dangerous because cholera had hit Asiyut as well. And then Lord stopped her. She tells the assistant, no, we have to take them. After a few days, as there, Musa and Ibrahim are around these 900 orphans, Musa was found to have cholera. She thought, did I do the wrong thing? So they prayed and they asked the Lord to protect everybody. Musa was taken to the hospital where after a few days he ended up dying. But nobody else in the orphanage ever got cholera. God protected them and God gave them a, a promise. There were more things that had, they had to go through. Uh, one, one day after Lillian is tired, she's resting, about to fall asleep and she sees a flicker on her wall. And she looks out the window, the boys, one of the boys' dormitories was on fire so they called the, for the fire department, nobody's showing up. So she, she says, all right, bucket brigade. She lines up all these boys with the buckets. They're trying to put this out, but they recognize that the fire is on the same wall as the kitchen, and there are kerosene tanks inside the kitchen. And she asked, she asked everybody, she prayed, God, protect everybody, because she knew it would just be an explosion and kill everybody around. She prays and prays, and all of a sudden the fire just begins to die down. The next morning when the fire department finally came, 
They were looking everything over and they saw that the fire crept up a wall and it was right beneath a hole and somebody had taken newspaper and stuffed it in that hole because they didn't want the cold air coming in. And the fire didn't catch the newspaper, which would have easily spread into the kerosene tanks and kaboom. God protected them even to the smallest detail like that. The fire and more sickness was a lot that they were going through, but God protected them. And when, uh, I don't have the, the year, I think it's 1955 now, her sister Jenny decided to come back for good, sold all of her assets and came to join her sister again. She would visit from time to time, but now she sold everything and came to work alongside of her sister, and the two were back together serving in the orphanage. Then the Sons of God made a documentary, 1955-56, they made a documentary of her work there. Uh, notoriety is there, but she simply was, she was a lady that just did what God wanted her to do. And she had a three-brick rule. I think it's helpful for us to have this three-brick rule too. She said, once you know it's God's will, get moving. At the orphanage, we started a new building project as soon as we have three bricks to put on top of each other. That's, that's helpful to know and discern what God is bringing. In 1961, uh, Lillian's physical condition began to deteriorate. She was hospitalized in ICU, ended up being hospitalized for about 10 weeks. And on Sunday, December 17th, 1961, two new babies were welcomed into the orphanage, and she died. Jenny was at her side. Lillian had been uh, there in, in Asiut for a little over 50 years. That's a long, stable ministry. And just before her death, she was asked about her secret to success. She said, I just stayed. I did not quit. I stayed with the work God gave me to do. When uh, they, they think about 20,000 uh, orphans came through that orphanage throughout its, its years. It's still in existence today. Uh, the Sons of God of Egypt still runs the orphanage. It's now named the, the Lillian Trasher Orphanage. But when all, of the, uh, when all of the boys and the girls were getting older, uh, they, well, uh, when she died, they came back. There was a, a deal they had to bury Egypt had a rule they had to bury him very quickly, so they just had a, a celebration of her life in the courtyard. And people, former orphans were bringing their families, and you had all of these girls that had the name Lillian, all these little girls running around, and you had all these boys named Trasher running around. Her legacy lasted because she said, I just stayed, I did not quit. I stayed with the work God gave me to do. The church, that's us today. We can benefit from this saint. We can benefit from her just saying, I just, from a young girl, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. We, we need to have that same faith with the Lord. God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. So, in our commission, go. What's that look like for you? Could mean just keep going in faith. 
Keep going in faith, trusting God will work every detail to His glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for these stories. Thank You that we have the ability to uh, be reminded of men and women of faith who, in their own estimation, were very ordinary, even though we look at them and think they're extraordinary. They say, no, I'm very ordinary, and I was just willing, and God used me. God, I pray that we would have that same effect, that you would use us ordinary people simply because we're saying, God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. Give us understanding. Lord, give us clarity and discernment in leading us and guiding us so we know exactly what you're calling us to do. And Father, give us the faith to do it, to stay at it, to not quit, to stay with the work you've called us to do. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's recite our commission together. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations.